This is Jim English, and welcome to my podcast called The Who Gives a Shit Files. And I'm happy to I'm happy to introduce Charlie Gange, who one night I had more than a couple of glasses of red wine, and I was amazed at his musical knowledge. And we're going to tap into a little of that today. Now, Charlie, how did you get interested in the music? How old were you? Give us some background, please. Well, first off, Jim, thanks so much for having me. I hope I can live up to your expectations or the memory of that night, <laughs> however, <laughs> however uh, induced that memory may have been. But uh, I, uh, so yeah, I've been playing music my whole life. You know, I think you know, just like anyone, I would say that I've been a lifelong musician who who plays music. Uh, I remember, you know, very clearly early memories of me just gravitating towards any kind of music I could find. You know, something that would calm me down. Uh, if I was upset as a, I mean, as a very small child, I'm talking, you know, under two sort of thing. Whoa. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to play with any toy instrument I could find and, and really just finding a lot of peace and love and uh, purpose in music. Um, growing up, I was, I, uh, I so, grew up in so kind of a the, quick yeah. question though. So of course. it's kind of like part of your DNA then, huh? Yeah, it definitely is. You know, my family is very musical, especially my extended family on, on really both sides from my, my mother and father. Uh, you know, on my on my dad's side, I have a great extended family. They all live up kind of in San Luis Obispo area. I know an area that you're very familiar with. And uh, we just kind of have jam sessions all the time. That's almost our way of communicating. So uh, it's it's really just a way for all of us to tap into a deeper part of our souls. I guess. I <laughs> love it. As that might sound. It's, it's really uh, yeah. how we feel. So. No, I think that, I think that's good. I think that's a yeah. good depiction of music. So how old were you when you first started playing your first musical instrument and what, what, what instrument was it? So begrudgingly, I had to start as late as seven. If you ask my mom, I had been begging from pretty much the time I could start speaking, which was pretty early. So finally, at the age of seven, after begging for pretty much any kind of lessons I could have, I think violin was my first uh, beg and plea. They got me a toy violin, but I knew it wasn't the same. Uh, I took piano lessons to start, and I was very grateful to have taken piano lessons. It's kind of, I kind of call it like a calculator of music. You know, it's everything's laid out. You get a really good foundation for it. And uh, yeah, took classical piano training from about the ages of seven to 10 and sort of took it from there. So, so of all the instruments, you think piano is a good, a good basis to start out? Why is that? So I think for anyone who has a deep passion and interest in learning music for the sake of, of music, like a very true musician, piano is a perfect instrument to start with because it's, I, I, I kind of relate it to being a calculator. It's, uh, it, you can see everything on that piano. Whereas if you play an instrument like a flute or even a guitar, you know, it's a little bit more based on patterns and positions and it's not as clear what you're actually playing uh, if you don't have that solid foundation from a piano of knowing kind of what each individual note is. Now, on the flip side, if music might just be sort of a, a hobby or a secondary thing, I say if there's any instrument that sounds fun, play that because that's going to be what motivates you to actually learn to love music in a better way. So piano for those who are just obsessed, obsessed with music, and, uh, you know, whatever instrument is the coolest for pretty much anyone else on that spectrum. Got it. And so you started playing classical piano at seven. Is that correct? Yes, that's Whoa. correct. How hard was that to <laughs> how hard was that to do? Uh, you know, I was very motivated by the repertoire. I think it was always something really exciting once you could play that. It was extremely challenging. Uh, there were plenty of times when I would be so hard on myself, you know, I'd, I'd just cry. I remember I had a piano recital when I was about seven or eight and I was playing a, uh, I believe it's an old Bach piece. And uh, I just kind of lost it in the middle of the recital and couldn't find my way back. And it's, uh, it's really hard. I think, you know, you see these amazing piano players that I've been playing and so many of them can just sit down at a piano and make it look so easy. But uh, piano, you know, is one of the only instruments I can think of where, you know, you actually can play 10 notes at a time, you know, an instrument like a, you know, like I said, like a flute, you know, you're only really playing one, one note at a time singing. You're obviously only singing one note at a time guitar. You know, I guess you can play 
up to six, you know, depending on the strings. But piano is really, it's just, there's so many intricacies and coordination that goes with uh, how much you can do with it, that it can be very stressful. And as a young child who is desperately wanting to learn, but might not even have the, the brain capacity yet to really fully embrace it, um, it's, it wasn't always fun. I'll say that. So do you remember what box song you were playing when you, when you, uh, kind of lost track? Well, I absolutely do. And I said, I think it was Bach because it was minuet and G. I, 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 I know that it's minuet and G, but there's a lot of debate on whether or not that's actually one of Bach's songs or potentially just one that, uh, he used to practice or maybe he taught his kids to practice, you know, that, Bach lived so long ago, you never quite know whose songs were whose. So um, most, mostly you can tell, but that one is, is a constant debate. And most people who start playing piano are familiar with that piece. So I'm very curious. So at seven years old, was music and playing piano an obsession or a passion or both and why? I think anyone who knows me wouldn't say that I'm off an obsessive compulsive spectrum in any way, shape or form. I think they, some of the, sometimes, you know, music and, and, you know, that level of, of passion sort of go hand in hand with obsession. I would say, you know, for me, my entire life, I've sort of been balancing those two levels of passion and obsession. I think it's very easy to, you know, find something that you love so much and so dearly and just let it, you know, completely fulfill, like I said, your heart and soul. And, and when you use that and you it, it, use it to enhance your life, that's amazing. But that line can, is very gray and can easily be crossed to a level of obsession where you maybe lose that purpose and you're doing it for, you know, maybe some other reasons that you're not super proud of, you know, whether it's just perfection or, you know, being obsessed with the challenge or again, just something you're compulsed to do. So, it's always something that has had just a major pull on my life. And uh, because, you know, it, it's so such a pull, I, I really try and focus on making sure that it's always a passion of mine as opposed to an obsession. But they're not mutually exclusive. I understand. Sure. And I and yeah. I appreciate the differentiation. So so how long did you play classic piano? Uh, so you started at seven. How long did you continue playing classic classical piano? So I think I never necessarily stopped playing classical piano. However, I stopped taking the rigorous lessons uh, about the age of 10. So that was about a three, three and a half year gap. Um, at that time, I was actually allowed by my parents. They bought me my very first guitar. And so I had been wanting that for a long time, but sort of the deal as well. I, I always made deals as far as me getting instruments and lessons like that was my motive so i got i got the guitar at 10 and uh that's when i was really able to start just you know ripping it totally different uh things you can do with that instrument so and um, so you were uh you were honing in your negotiation skills using music as a as a byproduct huh that's pretty cool yeah i thought it was a pretty positive reinforcement like or a pretty positive negotiation it's not like i was begging for candy like i wanted right. music lessons so no yeah and so you started playing guitar and what yeah. type of what type of guitar did you play my very first guitar um so my best friend's older brother he got a squire strat ripoff or not ripoff it's this it's i think it's owned by fender but a squire strat and i remember it being you know a uh black frame with you know the white pick guard and you know just a very standard uh starter guitar and i always thought that was so cool and he would play these you know cool you know different riffs on them from the 90s and early 2000s and I always thought it was super cool. So I really wanted the same guitar. So fortunately I did. The only difference is instead of a black frame, I got kind of a navy blue frame and just loved it. So it was just a starter kit, Squire guitar. It came with a little practice amp, which I actually still have. It's, it sounds pretty good, um, all things considered. And, uh, you know, some picks and cables and I think a tutorial book or something like that. So when you were playing, so you're, you're starting to master two instruments, right? So you got the, yeah. you got the piano and you got the guitar. Mm -hmm. And did you did you branch out into something else? And if so, what age and how did that go? So I was exposed to, you know, some pretty edgy music from a very young age. You know, I grew up, like I said, in the kind of mid to late 90s and early 2000s, uh, you know, and on. And so, 
you know, at that time, you know, kind of the pop music was like grunge and post grunge and new metal. And I was just from a very, very young age exposed to heavy, heavy, uh, dark, depressing, screaming type music. And so for me, you know, but when I was seven, like, you know, hearing someone scream on a record was kind of normal. You know, it wasn't anything that I was turned off by. I really didn't understand. I, I sort of got the purpose very early on. And so although I was playing classical music and, and had that inclination as well, I, I had always been very drawn to a heavier style of music. And so by getting an electric guitar and starting on that, uh, my ability to start playing sort of a more modern genre of music with, you know, that rock music with grunge, with you know, new metal, alternative rock, et cetera. That's really where I started to put my focus, uh, which by the way, I think for anyone who is starting on guitar, I, it sort of goes back to my early statement about, you know, pick a fun instrument, like play fun guitar, play electric guitar. If you want to go back to acoustic and classical, you know, that's in my opinion, I think that should be done afterwards. You're going to get better by learning songs you love. And so that's what I did. I learned songs I love. So this, this is fascinating here, Charlie. So you go from playing, so you're, you know, you're 10 years old, 11 years old, and the, the music that you're playing mostly, and correct me if I'm wrong, and there's probably some others there, are like they're so opposite of each other because you got classical mm -hmm. and you got grunge. And I assume you mean like Nirvana mm -hmm. and like Metallica. Did you like Metallica? Love Metallica. Okay. Yeah super it's back then it sounded so cool like, yeah. <laughs> little sandman action uh, uh yes <laughs> <laughs> so so i mean so there's like so much music in between that spectrum there like did, were you ever into pop for example or did you go yeah. right from yeah well you know so it's interesting i think you know so i mean some of the earliest stuff that i remember being exposed to as I said, like, you know, the memories under two, for instance, you know, I would fall asleep to like pretty intricate uh, classical music. You know, it wasn't always just, you know, the, the the typical baby music that, you know, a baby would fall asleep to. I would I was exposed to classical music, you know, very early on. It's kind of my way of, you know, just entering the world. And so that had always been very ingrained in me. But equally, you know, fortunately, my parents had me when they were fairly young. And so they were listening to kind of the hip and happening music of, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. And, you know, were very into that edgy kind of thing. And so for me, the, the, the earliest exposure to music was really that style. So I, I eventually found my way back. But like, I didn't necessarily grow up on like, pop music or, you know, classic rock. Like I grew up on the music that, you know, like I said, of the 90s and the 2000s, that was just extremely extremely heavy and a lot of that cry for help kind of music that is so that is so interesting though that the you know because once again those are those are diverse in terms of music i mean that's a Absolutely. you know those the opposite end yeah. of the spectrum what stringed instrument do you find the most difficult to master yeah so kind of as i was saying the for me it's all about the tunings. Uh, so if, 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 I can if I can play something that I can pluck and is tuned similar to a guitar, you know, kind of like a bass, uh, it's, it's pretty simple for me. And, but what I would say probably the most difficult is anything that you have to play with a bow. So like a violin or a cello uh, or a double bass or a viola, kind of things like that. There's, there's a very specific technique and balance, balancing act that comes with playing a bow. And, Although I, I definitely wanted to play violin from a young age, I, I never quite did. And uh, it's, it's difficult. I, I know people spend almost a year, a year and a half, just trying to figure out how to make uh, a listenable sound, <laughs> a, man, a, a dealable sound with that bow rather than it just sounding like garbage. So very difficult to do. Uh, you know, the, the flip side of that is they're not typically playing a lot of chords. So the... Uh, you know, you're really just playing like one or two notes at a time. So that part might be a little bit easier, but bowing is a really tough thing. I could see that. So yeah. have you ever, have you ever uh, just a couple of instruments that I really like, did you ever play much mandolin? That's awesome. I actually have little. a mandolin. Do you yeah, really? <laughs> I do. Yeah. My, my uncle up in San Luis Obispo, he actually kind of makes them as a hobby. He's a tremendous mandolin player. And so he made me, 
uh, a mandolin a, a few years ago. And I, I, I love that instrument, you know, it's so portable and <laughs> you can kind of play it anywhere, but um, you know, interesting story about mandolin. So my uh, place I used to work and actually a woman I've known for pretty much my entire life, uh, her nephew is actually Chris Feely, who's one of the greatest mandolin players to ever walk the face of the planet. He's in Punch Brothers, Nickel Creek, and uh, he's Yo-Yo Ma's mandolin player. He actually won the MacArthur Grant, which, if you know, is a $500,000 grant that they give to artists just because there's no stipulations. They just, really? trust, you know, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, he won it as well. So that caliber of musician and um, he's, he, I actually had the opportunity to meet him and, uh, hang out backstage with him just, you know, cause of the kind of connection that I have with, uh, with his family, but, um, he's so, such a cool and awesome guy. And that's just a cool story. I have. That is a very cool story. So, uh, you know, it's amazing to me that a mandolin player would get that much notoriety. Uh, yeah. I, now those are all, those are all, um, what do they call it? Uh, bluegrass bands, right? Yeah, you know, bluegrass is definitely where mandolin is rooted yeah. in. You know, I think what Chris did with his first with his band Nickel Creek is who's who's actually from Carlsbad um, in San Diego. They uh, really revolutionized the sound to make it not just so formulaic. You know, they he is very inspired by Bach, who we were talking about by classical music. Actually, one thing that he'll do now is he'll play Bach concertos on the mandolin. It's just unheard of, but. Um, you know, he's able to take an instrument that is very much uh, associated with a particular genre and sort of just break all barriers and branch it out into different genres, which I, I as a musician love doing. And so I think from a respect standpoint, I just I love that. It's super cool. And do you have you played it much, the mandolin? Yeah, you know, I dabble. Uh, mm-hmm. I think always, you know, any instrument you pick up when you start kind of noodling around with it, you're going to write differently. And so for me as a songwriter and a composer, I always like trying to play different instruments because I'll get a different level of inspiration or maybe I'll play a different lick that I would normally play on a guitar, even just as simple as the tuning and or the the sound, the the intonation. And so I, I try and play it as much as possible. It's def- I definitely don't play it as much as the guitar, but... Um, whenever I need something a little bit different, that's a pretty fun one to go to. And how about the banjo? I love the banjo. Similar thing. You know, banjo has such a beautiful sound and it's so associated with like country and bluegrass, but there's so much you can do with it. Um, and, you know, kind of with that, that drum body, it, it just, it, it has this really rich sound to it so i don't own a banjo so i don't get to play it every single day but once again the the slow family they have it up there and um i'll try and snag it whenever they're not looking boy that because my first music that i like to listen to was was a genre called folk when i was a little kid and that's oh, yeah. what my parents used to use you know the kingston trio and they had the banjo and so that was interesting so are you in are you in some bands right now what bands have you been in so bands that I've been in uh, still around. So I'm currently in a band. We're a little bit on hold at the moment. It's, it's kind of my project, I should say. But kind of once COVID hit, everything just went on pause. But uh, we're called Electric Wall. Um, you can check out our music on electricwallband.com, just exactly how those would be spelled. Um, and yeah, that's kind of my personal project, you know, as I've been in between bands. Um, I was auditioning for a couple of bands and, you know, doing some different things. I actually play... Uh, sometimes in a uh, kind of a, a corporate party band called uh, Energy, just NRG. Um, if anyone's looking to hire a, a band for your conference, they are amazing. Uh, even without me, they absolutely rock and have been rocking it for decades. So definitely recommend that. Uh, there's another band actually in San Diego called Ten Bulls. Uh, got a couple really good buddies in there. Um, I started that band with those guys um, back in college. We were called Sights and Sages at the time. So um, they've recently, you know, there's been a ton of changes since then. Obviously, I'm not in the band anymore, um, but we're all still really good friends and, you know, totally different sound. But they just put out a new song called The Gory, um, which uh, everyone should go check out. So Ten Bulls, like the number Ten Bulls. You can find them on Instagram at uh, 10, the letter 10, T-E-N underscore Bulls. Um, and yeah, good, good buddies of mine and something that I, I feel really proud for kind of having initiated back in the day. Excellent. Excellent. And you're probably always looking for a new band to either join or configure or whatever, right? 
Yeah, you know, for me, I, I, I can do the solo thing. You know, I, I whenever you're not in a band as a singer, you know, it's something you 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 can do. And so I, I enjoy it. Um, one thing I'll also do is I make electronic music under the moniker Director, D-E-R-A-C-T-O-R. So I, I can always keep myself occupied. But, you know, music is such a communal experience. It's about communicating. It's about sharing. You know, it's storytelling in, in, in essence. And I think being able to like I said, use this sort of deeper level of communication and be able to collaborate with people uh, is something really special. So I, I never love going by my own name with music. I mean, again, I will if it's just there's absolutely no other choice. But even if it's a personal project like Electric Wall, I always love leaving room for, you know, other people to come in and, uh, you know, bring their own ideas and inspire. Even when you're in a recording studio, you know, producers have so much uh, input and in what goes actually on the actual record and you know what the songs actually end up turning into so for me it's it I love collaborating and I'm always looking for new bands to play in uh, whether it's a permanent band or someone I can just jam with now you were a music major right in college I was I graduated from San Diego State with a bachelor of music degree um, and so what yeah. do, so you are you know you're not only a practicing musician you're educated on the history of yes. music is there a genre or an era that that you find particularly notable or creative or trend setting you know that's a great question i think there's so many points in time that you could go back and pinpoint things that have made a huge impact i would say if there's a top three for me it was box era We've talked about him a lot. He really set yes. the tone for all Western music um, and music theory. Uh, I would say the blues and, you know, African-American spirituals and how that really set, you know, the modern age of music. And then finally, believe it or not, I would actually say the 80s uh, and the incorporation of uh, you know, synthesizers, the incorp uh, or that I know that it came a little bit before, but I would say the heavy incorporation of synthesizers, electric instruments, um, wailing, big singing and, and massive shows, I would say sort of the 80s. And, you know, I could probably loop the 70s in there as well. But uh, those those three to me stand out as just, you know, had we not had those music today would look very different. So so Bach, I love to yeah. start off with him. I have sure. heard him describe as the founder of rock. Yes. Why would you, as a matter of fact, I heard you describe that at the party after some red wine. So why would you <laughs> say that? Why would, why would you say that? Cause I've heard that before and I agree with you. One of my favorite songs is by Jethro Tull and they do Bori, which is a great box song. Mm -hmm. So I was, what, expand on that, please. About of course. Uh, Johan being the first rocker. Yeah. Tell me more about Bach, please, and how it affected rock music. So Bach has been credited as sort of being, you know, as you mentioned, sort of this, uh, I forget the word you use, but like the godfather of rock music, the founder of modern rock music. And the biggest reason is because Bach is also largely credited with basically penning what is now, you know, Western music theory. So you know, just like, you know, you could make the argument that Shakespeare probably wasn't alone, you know, Bach probably wasn't alone as well. But nevertheless, what Bach was doing and the kind of the rules he set was essentially rules that we are still following today to a T. So what I mean by that, and probably the most basic is in music, when it comes to like something like chord progressions, you know, you may have seen that video on YouTube or that song where, you know, it's like the same four chords over and over and over again. Right. And it's just diff different songs, you know what I'm talking about? So the, the, what they're, well, the reason why those chords work so well is they're all based in box uh, kind of a chord leading structure. So typically a, a standard rock song is one is like, you know, based on the root chord. So if you're playing in C, it's, you know, the one chord, so it would be C. And then, you know, you could go to the four chord of C, which is F, and then the five chord, which is G, and then typically back to one. So like this mapping that we're talking about where it's one, four, five, one, you could do it in any key, any scale, et cetera. Um, that is basically an allowed path that Bach has set in 
in this in music theory. So there's a ton of different paths you can take. It's not always just one, four, five, one. That's a very easy path to take. And it sounds really, really good. Uh, but there's kind of, you know, anything that you hear a lot of bands do, they're most likely falling within that specific uh, type of uh, pathway because it's very pleasing to our ears, especially as Western music aficionados. Uh, that's something that sounds very familiar. Uh, and is a formula that we know works very, very well. So rock musicians have been following that formula uh, almost to a T. And whenever you hear something that might be a little out of the ordinary, that's probably an opportunity where they might be jumping off of that formula. And it sounds weird because it's not really what Bach penned. Now, of course, with music, there's always room for improvisation. And I think Bach would tell you, you know, break it if you have a reason. But his whole thing is understand the the rules and then break the rules based on your understanding and let there be a purpose for it. So, um, so yeah, it's, that's, that's in the most simplest context. He, he, uh, he's kind of the cartographer. I see. He, he, he's a cartographer. He does. Some, so um, he developed kind of a structure and you see this structure in rock music from the beginning of rock music, right? Absolutely. So the, the very beginning of rock music, again, I, I would li largely credit to, you know, blues and, uh, you know, at the time they called it hillbilly music, but now it's country. And so rock was was formed mainly as a fusion between blues, which, again, blues was an offshoot of gospel. It's basically just right. secular gospel um, right. and, and hillbilly music. But even which, of course, is country music. Hillbilly now has a bad connotation. But uh, you take those music together and I would say blues, even going back to there, you know, a very, very typical chord progression for the blues is what people call the 12 bar blues. So almost any music you heard, especially from a rock band in the 50s, um, largely with blues, except again to blues uh, musicians credit, they're, they are often absolute shredders on an acoustic guitar. <laughs> Just yes. absolutely amazing. So it's harder to pick up, you know, and they might be improvising a lot because, you know, especially that genre is just so based on expression. But uh, the 12 bar blues is essentially uh, it's one, four, one, five, four, one. And if you plugged that into almost any type of music or a, a rock music back in, like I said, maybe like the 50s, uh, Rolling Stones did it a lot. Um, yeah. Tons of bands back then. Uh, you would know it immediately how it sounds and why it really just makes sense to your ear. And the 12 bar blues is another example of that mapping, something you're allowed to do within box structure. And so, so, okay. So let's move on to like the blues. Okay. Yeah. Or the, so I like this. So rock music, well, rock music is kind of a fusion of hillbilly music, blues, and mm -hmm. gospel who is yeah. who are some of those uh pioneer musicians so you're in a time frame you're looking in the in the 20s and 30s probably exactly yeah. okay and who do you think are some of the pioneers so you know there's there's so many that you could go into um robert johnson is often credited as one of the most successful blues musicians uh of that era he's actually one of Eric Clapton's biggest influence. If you hear yes. um, Eric Clapton say, you know, who's your biggest guitar influence or musician influence, he will say Robert Johnson pretty much every single time. Uh, Muddy Waters, obviously a very big name of, yeah. that, of that era, um, you know, famously uh, recorded as part of sort of the, um, I, I believe they were doing it more for like historical documentation. They, they recorded his music for the Library of Congress, if I'm not mistaken, you know, fact check that. But I, I do know the original reason why he was being recorded was for historical documentation of the era and of the genre. And then that music, because it was recorded, it got out and just became a sensation. So, you know, because thanks of to, how... Thanks to Cadillac Records, right? Yeah, you know, I, I, I believe so. You know, there's yeah. all, there was a there was a market for it, you know, just like with anything, music is, is all about marketing. Um, and, you know, there was a market for that. In fact, um, before I get, you know, into the hillbilly music, uh, fun fact, we were talking about Nirvana earlier. So Nirvana, one of their famous last concerts was that MTV Unplugged. And they played a show or they played uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? 
which is a song uh, originally epic by song. Uh, epic song. I mean, beautiful. It's originally by uh, Lead Belly was his name. And yes. Yes. Uh, in- interestingly enough, um, you know, Lead Belly is an amazing musician and this is no discredit to him, but just kind of where music marketing comes in. Um, and again, we can fact check this if you want, but from what I heard uh, and what I was taught, they actually kind of dressed Lead Belly up to look a little bit more rugged uh, at the time, just kind of fit that sort of uh, almost like Southern soulful bluesy, almost Got like it. figurehead. Got and, it. uh, you know, even though that might not have been necessarily his like wardrobe of choice. So it's interesting that, you know, we have this, uh, you know, genre that's, you know, it's so pure and, and it is, that's not taking it away, but you know, there's, there's still a market for it, which, which they chose at that time. Um, so, so Charlie, wasn't Robert Johnson, wasn't he the guy who was a good musician and disappeared for two years and came back, and legend has it that the devil taught him to play music. Is that the same? Yeah, guy? yeah. So Robert Johnson, yeah, he's he's definitely a legend, and I, I believe he, yeah, he died young or disappeared young. But he has a song called Crossroad Blues, uh, and you know that really put him on. And you know the story has it as he went to the crossroads and basically made a deal with the devil to make him a famous musician. Yes. And he did, you know, but just like any musician, you know, he, he, he had this amazing sound and, you know, there was a time he even tried to go really pop. I think he had a song called hot tamales that was just kind of not even within the same realm of what he was doing. This is kind of funny. If you, if you check that out, it's two very different sounds, but yeah, he, um, he, he had, I mean, you listen to this guy, you know, there's certain people like him, BB King, I would throw in there, they're, you know, this, the sound and the style is, is so rugged. So you don't even have to necessarily be the best musician to make it sound pure and authentic, but this guy's voice was just unbelievable. You know, there's just such a beautiful range and beautiful, amazing guitar playing. Um, so he, I mean, if he sold the soul of the devil, the devil really gave him, uh, you know, quite a hand, but unfortunately, yeah, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's like any deal like that. It doesn't last. So, <laughs> so, so you've got, you've got the whole blues and then you have, which is an amazing music to me. I love the energy. Yeah. Uh, is the gospel music. Yes. Now they're akin, but they're not like identical, Right. So blues was born from gospel, you know, uh-huh. gospel was, is it's, it's all based in, like I said, African American, African American spirituals. Yes. Um, and, you know, we all know the, the, the terrible history that inspired them to create many of those songs. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so tragic to hear these songs, but they're so powerful because they're so rooted in just this incredible, uh strength and authenticity and energy throughout the most horrible of times anyone could ever imagine i mean the american united states slavery i mean has been rated or the slave era i mean just the worst treatment of slaves in almost any era the world has ever seen and for them to sing these songs and create these songs with that strength and passion there's a reason why, you know, still today you hear that song at a choir concert, you hear it in, in blues and you hear how it's transformed rock and roll. Um, there's a reason why people cry. You know, there's a reason why people yeah. are obsessed with this style of music. Yeah. I mean, when you have that much, you know, you have that much political, emotional turmoil yes. and cruelty, that is sort of the intense environment that generates that type of emotion in music. You know, music is often born from heartache and tragedy and in, in trying times, you know, you don't often hear, you know, the most powerful song from, you know, someone who has everything. It's just, it's not the same uh, need for expression as that music can sometimes lend itself to. I'm not saying that, you know, people who are well off can't make great music, but there, there certainly is something to be said uh, about music that comes from people in, you know, let's just say less than ideal scenarios. Well, and I think that if you look traditionally at certainly American music, you'll find mm-hmm. that most of the people and even the, the British people are coming from lower class, lower middle or middle class that have mm-hmm. really exceeded 
and done well and have been very expressionistic. Yeah. You know, we're, we're a country that's, that's based on, you know, being rebellious and, and working hard and fighting through adversity to make a better life for ourselves. And, um, you know, a lot of those paths are a lot harder than others. And I think certainly the hardest one is, you know, the path that bred this gospel, this American gospel music. And, you know, I, I, I do believe, you know, that's why that is really like at the top of everything that has, has created our modern rock music and really just modern music today is all stemmed from there. Cause it's, it's the best. I mean, it, it really is. And so also too, is speaking of demographics and social class, yeah. the, the hillbilly music, which correct me if I'm wrong, had its roots from like the poor people that migrated from England and Scotland to the South. Is that correct? Is that where that came from? I believe so. Yeah. I, it's, 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 it's again, I mean, it's their level of adversity, you know? So uh, a popular style of music for sure. Yes. And uh, actually there's a, I don't know if you've ever, you may have seen this movie. You ever see the movie called the song catcher? I actually have not, no. Oh, it's, you'd love it. It's about a lady who goes into the South at about 1900 and tries to do a music catalog on hillbilly music and where it came yeah. from and who did it. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's I, love the, I love the movie. So, yeah. so you got the fusion of the two. And then these two, these two types of music... Uh-huh. gave rise to the 50s, which were, to me, was an incredible era of music because you had the birth of rock, you had soul, you had all the different genres coming together and creating a mainstream type music that everybody listened to, right? It, it yes. was everybody. It took over by storm. It really did. You know, I mean, probably the easiest person to credit or to credit the 50s to is Elvis. Um, But, you know, kind of I was talking about with, you know, marketing campaigns within music, Elvis is not without controversy. You know, I think almost every single one of Elvis's songs were essentially a ripoff of an African-American blues artist. And, you know, I think Hound Dog, you know, is, is one of the most famous ones for doing that, where that's he Elvis was not a songwriter, first of all. So, and it's not uncommon for musicians to not write their own songs. But what was unfortunately common at that time was the stealing of music with no consequences. And you know, on on one level, I'm happy that you know we had musicians like Elvis to popularize these songs and the style of music. Today, we can hopefully recognize where they came from. But you know, at the time, we had these people writing these songs that are getting absolutely no credit or no payment for this music. And nothing gets ever, ever, I mean, it never comes back to them. So yes, it was amazing that we were able to take this music and market it in in a way, or it was amazing that the industry, I should say, could market it in a way that they found they, they could, you know, mass, mass produce it and sell it. But again, I, I wish our history would have done something a little bit differently with that. I wish, I wish we as a society and as a culture would have accepted the original music rather than, you know, having to give it to basically a white artist to basically sing. Yeah. I remember Mick Jagger going, you know, when he, when they became popular, he goes, you guys should have been listening to Muddy Waters. We're just been ripping him off for years. Yes. Just to your, just, just to your point. And, you know, it was interesting too, is that a lot of the marketing of music, came from after world war ii when teenage girls had some buying power and they started buying music like crazy and that helped drive the you know the teen idols and the the music of the late 50s and early 60s the you know the dions the fabians those guys that were (laughs) pretty good they're pretty good musicians and crooners uh but they didn't have like the depth and the edge and the rawness that yeah. they had in the thirties and forties. Yeah. You know, I think, um, a hundred percent, you know, and you want to sell records, you know, you want, and, and 
you know, teenagers, you know, girls and boys are very impressionable. And so, you know, you're, you're able to really capitalize on, you know, someone that, you know, you can just make a storm with. And at the time, yeah, they were the ones buying the records or their parents were like buying the records for them. And, you know, you could, you could really do a number in that, in that demographic, but yeah, if, if this, if stuff like that happened today, I mean, it, it just, it, we would never allow it. So you no. know, it worked for the time. It worked for the time. And again, did get that music out there. Maybe we wouldn't have gotten that style of music out at all. I just, I wish we could have. I do. I, I wish we could go back and kind of redo that one, but it's okay. It, it well, happens. we can't. And you know, this, this is interesting. This is interesting point of trivia. One of the biggest lawsuits, and you may or may not know this, came from, you know, Chuck Berry did, um, you know, they're dancing. What was that? What's that song he did? He did it. Chuck Berry did a song about yeah. where, he, um, where he, he talked about all their dancing in Chicago, down Miami Way, you know, the, yeah. one of his songs. And the Beach Boys directly ripped it off with Surfing USA. It was chord oh, yeah. for chord, and that was the first time that anybody – Chuck Berry was the first time anybody got any money for ripping somebody off. You know, there's a uh, – I there's, there's another story. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone on YouTube and typed in, like, Led Zeppelin plagiarism, and this is probably going to make a lot of people really, really Ooh, upset. But, tell me, tell me. Um, so Led Zeppelin, uh, if you go on and, you know, type in Led Zeppelin plagiarism on YouTube, I mean, this broke my heart. I mean, not that I was ever really the biggest Led Zeppelin fan. Um, I respect them tremendously, but little, little before my time, I would say. But they, um, if you listen to, go, if you compare their songs with old blues songs, it is sort of the same thing. And essentially what happened was Led Zeppelin was directly ripping off blues songs without giving any credit to the artists and i believe they ended up actually going through a lawsuit themselves and they basically got away with it by just you know paying a million dollars and calling it a day and they're you know they did they were denied 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 for years 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 and then eventually they couldn't deny it anymore and they're like oh yeah we did here's a million dollars which a million dollars to you know jimmy page and robert plant is nothing so no it, they really got away with it and there just wasn't the laws or even the ability to be able to check things like that back then and um you know it is depressing so i mean if you love led zeppelin maybe don't check that out um if you're if you're willing to do it maybe i i sometimes i have to coin them as like the greatest tribute band of all time because they really <laughs> are spectacular and no disrespect well, but i mean that's hard to hear it's hard like you you talk about these rock gods and it's not even their music but they say it's their music like what are you supposed to do with that i don't know no, there, there is a lot of similarity between what they've done and some other bands there's one of my favorite songs by Led Zeppelin, and I am I am a Led Zeppelin fan. They're not my favorite band, yeah. but they're 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 one of my favorites. There's a song Hangman that they do, and that's a that's a direct ripoff from the Kingston Trio. They did that uh-huh. song, and it's almost identical to it. Now, one band that I loved, and since we're kind of just spitballing here and free free throwing, did you ever listen to Cream? Oh, I love Cream. Yeah. What did you like Cream. about Cream? You know, they were one of the very early on, you know, it's Eric Clapton's band. Um, you know, one of the early, early bands to really bring forth that blues music. Uh, to my knowledge, they weren't play driving, um, you know, at all. So, but, you know, the songs that they were putting out, you know, the kind of blues uh, mixed with some psychedelic uh, type stuff and you know they were they were so cool because they were so directly influenced by blues music and they give all the credit in the world to those artists and so I think you know if there's a if there's any way that I wish most of our artists were doing it it was it would be that it's you know you're definitely inspired and that's okay you know you're where music is meant to be passed down and you know you're supposed to take things to kind of make it your own and I do believe that they did make it their own but they gave credit where credit was due every step of the way. They did. They did. And, it, you know, what's interesting is they were so competitive with each other. Oh. You know, it, it, there were only three. There were only three of them for the most yeah. part. Now, they had other people, you know, sidemen step in and do some other things, some horns occasionally. But it was basically three men that did it. And Ginger Baker, who, who left us recently, 
yeah. passed away. He got his drum style because he was a cyclist and huh. his lower body would just power those songs through. Yeah. Interesting. That's, so that's pretty cool. That, that was, that was pretty cool. So I just thought I'd put in a plug for, because they're my favorite yeah. rock band. I know that Rolling Stones have also, you know, they were, you know, they, they were like Muddy Waters Jr. Uh, and, yeah. But they gave, they took Muddy Waters on tours with him. So they gave credit where credit is due. So tell me about the eighties now. So you, you picked eighties is a sentinel time in rock music. Tell me about that, please. So for me, the eighties were just, it was just really a time where I think, I think the, the rock band really hit its peak in my opinion. So you know, we had been developing rock for so long. And of course, we just talked all about that. But in the 80s, I, I really think everything came together. And it's not going to get much better than that. Um, you had, you know, people just intentionally just putting on these unbelievable shows. You know, you watch, you know, the Motley Crue movie, you see how they did it. They were, they were inventing, you know, these, you know, pyrotechnic, you know, massive experience, stadium experiences that, no one had ever seen, you know, you, you have enhanced uh, music technology to allow you to get these crunchy guitar sounds and heavy distortion, but you also have these singers that are singing these ranges and these notes that almost go unnoticed because of how put together everything else is. Like, you know, you listen to, I, I know everyone loves Journey, you know, and everyone knows how good of a singer he is, but you almost listen to those songs and you don't realize how hard to sing the songs that he's singing is. And it's why they had to find a guy on YouTube from the other side of the world to come in and replace Steve Perry when he could no longer do the gigs because he's literally that hard to replace. And I, I think you had so much of that at the time. But what I also think was really interesting about that was our uh, social media was really not a thing. The internet was really not a thing. And so you still had musicians, in my opinion, that were getting uh mus music notoriety for their music you know it wasn't necessarily uh you know about you know the image first you know it wasn't necessarily about you know things that are being kind of shoved in people's faces it it still had the essence of you know we're a band from a garage we're just playing music and we're gonna grow and yeah you know our look might be part of the show but you know we're not getting famous really for any other reason other than our music first and foremost and again I know there's so many variations to that and I'm sure it started, it's going to seep in a little bit, but that's why I really think the E's are passionate. Not to mention they really started to introduce uh, electronic music, you know, with, with synthesizers and, you know, keyboards. And again, I, I get that that was part of, you know, the seventies to an extent as well. And probably, and even the sixties, but you know, the, the modulations and the, the different sounds that they were creating, although it was, some of it was still a little bit, uh, you know, primitive for that style. Uh, I, I think really came around to an amazing point. So I think the eighties are really important. Not to mention hip hop, you know, was really birthed through the eighties. And yeah. you know, we just, we, it, to me, it was just the, it was the peak of music. And I think it could have been an amazing time to be around. And people probably don't always think that because the eighties sometimes are kind of silly. You know, that's why, that's why grunge really was born is sort of a rebellious take on, you know, kind of some, what people probably thought was like a bubble gummy style of music, but the reality of it is, is that they were just fun shows from freaking amazingly talented musicians. And they're raw, too. There's a rawness that's, oh, you know, like that's, I mean, you look at Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and it's raw. It like, yeah. it like hits nerves. You know what I mean? It's like a drill hitting a nerve. Yeah. And the same thing with like Nirvana and Metallica and some of these other bands, they're raw and they're just intense and they, they're, they like hit nerves. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. You know, they, they're, it's just, it's, it's as a singer myself, I mean, in the nineties, we really, like I said, there was a, it was almost a rebellious take on everything that the eighties were. And sometimes I feel like that included good singing. Um, you know, it's like, there was something kind of special about, this sort of uh, incomplete style of singing. And it's kind of just like, you know, grunting and, you know, being out of breath and, you know, just a lot of bad technique, basically. But the 80s singers, I mean, 
you know, they also grew up in a time where, you know, the reason why they were musicians is because they practiced and they learned, you know, the core of music and music theory. And, you know, by the time that they were rock stars, you know, they had all either sung in their choir or had taken voice lessons. And like, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a good singer in a rock band. And I love no. that the 80s did that. You know? No, I, I think that's, I think that's essential. Um, you know, I mean, to have some voice training and, to you know, have range and, yeah. Wow. Well, this has been a blast. Did you have fun? I had a blast. Yeah, it's it's super fun to talk about music. And, you know, I don't always get to go this step in depth with everyone. So, you know, Jim, I love talking to you about it. It's cool that we get well, to do it on this uh, So you, So you, Charlie, are the official music consultant of the Who Gives a Shit Files. <laughs> I'll I take have, it. <laughs> I have, and your brother is the Padres consultant of the Who Gives a Shit Files. And oh, I he'll have, tell you. Oh, yeah. He's, I, we, I, he's been on like four times. And unfortunately, yeah. he's lamenting what's his optimism is dissipating quickly. But this has been great. I'd love to have you on again. I would love to be on again. Yeah, just, you know, keep me posted. Anything you want to talk about, I'm, I'm down to talk. I hope, uh, I, I hope this came out well. You know, it was fun to spitball a little bit and uh, just kind of go, uh, go through the decades. It's so what I always do at the end of podcasts is I let people say anything they want to about their subject matter. So say anything you would like about how music makes you feel about the emotions that come out, uh, anything you would like, just what, just give us a diatribe on music, please. A diatribe on music, you know, (laughs) I guess probably the easiest way I could say it is, you know, we, we have, we have a lot of colors that we can paint with in this world, but, but I think those colors a lot of times come from music. You know, when we speak with one another, there's typically just kind of one palette that we're using and it's great, but it can often be hard to describe more what you're feeling. Um, You know, there's hundreds of different languages in the world, but I know that if I hear music, I'm going to be able to understand it. And I'm going to be under, be able to understand what that person is feeling on a much deeper level that they could can communicate with that singular palette and with that singular language. So for me, I think music is essential to the human connection and our survival as a species, being able to communicate and express our, you know, innermost thoughts and feelings in a way that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. You know, there's other art forms that can do a similar thing. For me, mine is music, and I I firmly believe that we should always be playing. So that is such a beautiful statement and a great way to end this podcast. Charlie, thank you so much for showing up, and we will talk to you soon. Sounds good, Jim. You have a great day. Appreciate you, it. You too. Bye. Bye bye.